You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back. David Scales here. Today's episode is episode number two of Creators and Innovators, presented by Visla. You need to subscribe to that podcast feed if you want to get future episodes of this show. This will be the last time I publish it on Surf Splendor. So to incentivize you, I've actually published a bonus episode on that feed too. Today's episode is with surfboard shaper Christine Brailsford Caro, and this bonus episode has extra content from Christine and then also surfboard reviews from listeners who own and ride her boards. So you can only get that on the Creators and Innovators podcast feed. Search for it in your app, click subscribe, and never miss an episode. Thank you for doing that. And also, don't forget, if you listened to my interview last week with Dave Ali from Almond Surfboards, you know that we're going to give away, we are, are giving away one of his R-Series soft tops, and we're going to do that on September 1st. It's just a thank you for anyone who's made a financial contribution to this show. This show and the network at large is listener-supported with an assist from companies like Spy, Need Essentials, and now Visla. But none of it would exist without your support. And the addition of these new shows is made possible with that support as well. So as a thank you, we've been able to give away two surfboards thus far this year. This will be the third. You can support at surfsplendorpodcast.com donate. The board is a high-performance soft top from Almond Surfboards. They're made right here in California. The foam itself, they're constructed here, and it's totally recyclable. It has two stringers embedded into it, and then quad fin futures boxes. It's made to rip on, not just learn on. So it's a great addition to anyone's quiver, just as a playful option for somewhere that may be blackballed or doesn't allow hardboard surfing. So you can learn more about that board on our donation page that I just mentioned, or at almondsurfboards.com. One winner will be randomly selected from our list of donors on September 1st. The only cost you'll incur is shipping. All right, thank you. Without further ado, enjoy today's show. A furrow is um, it's, it's a farm reference. Um, it's the, the rows that they plant seeds in. And I, when I was thinking of a name that I wanted, it took me a long time to come up with that. Um, but I like the idea of it, like it's like a starting point of growth. And I feel like surfboards, you know, you get good waves on them and you have these memories built up in them. And I hope that the boards I create will give people those memories and then also give them an experience that they can take into their lives. Um, hopefully it's a positive experience because I, I feel like with making surfboards, it gives me a lot of um, purpose in my life, and I. But it's not something like you know I'm not saving people's lives. Like I'm not a nurse. Sure. I'm not a doctor. But I'm trying to take something that's a positive, and hopefully that will kind of resonate into other people's lives and resonate, you know, into the world. People email me and say, "Oh, that board was really cool. Like I had this experience, and it's helped me yeah. grow, or this and that." And I'm like, "Okay, I, I have, I have some purpose in this world."
but the board is like deep in my under, you know, kind of development of my understanding of surfing and like wave faces and reading waves and um, utilizing speed, when to decrease the speed, when to capitalize on it. Um, for me, like at this point in my life, I'm a dad, I have kids, like I think my <laughs> highest performance surfing is behind me just to be realistic with myself. So yeah, I'm just kind of looking to have fun and be realistic with my abilities and the amount of surfing I can actually do. Being able to kind of consistently perform at the level that I'm happy with. Um, so that part about the board I, I really like and appreciate. That was podcast listener and furrow surfcraft writer Ryan Black giving his review of a 6.2 Scout single fin, which is a surfboard model shaped by Christine Brailsford Caro. Christine is the subject of today's episode of Creators and Innovators, presented by Visla. Each month, we seek to distill the character traits, motivations, and the daily rituals of creatives in hopes of developing a blueprint for how to disrupt norms, innovate, and create in one's own space. I'm David Scales. Christine Brailsford Caro is an artist who has paved a professional path in the world of surfboard shaping. She's among very few shapers and the only female that I'm aware of to be exploring the edge surfboard design, something that we'll get deep into in this episode. We'll also be hearing from a few surfers like Ryan, who are currently riding Christine's boards, and from Christine's mentor, surfboard shaper Mark Andrini. Before we do, however, we should unpack some of Christine's origin story. She grew up slightly inland in San Diego, California, and prior to shaping surfboards, she studied art and design. I think one of the important notes to take away from Christine's story is that she always pursued her passion for creating, and when costs and expense got in the way, she adapted and improvised and innovated new outlets to express her creativity. I went to the Laguna College of Art and Design. Uh, they focused, their main focus was on like portraiture that was like realistic realism I guess like oil paintings Mm -hmm. so it was cool to learn that kind of renaissance way of creating art and then I really loved art history so I learned I was I I loved all that but I I worked kind of in every medium I was kind of all over the place um but one thing that I always gravitated to towards was watercolor pen and ink and like printmaking like wood carving okay so when I graduated college I I kind of I guess like when I was in college they kind of had all these medium like uh, art mediums that were kind of expensive like really fancy papers and fancy paints and stuff and I got out of school and we were in the middle of a recession it was 2008 couldn't get a job at anywhere (laughs) and uh, so I just started uh, I was living at my parents house and I was just experimenting with um, wood carving and so I kind of created my own personal symbolism with um, with the wood carving where it's kind of like my meditation Um, I had a bunch of like um, just kind of scrap plywood boards like in my studio garage studio and that I was making the wood carvings with and I had a, a bigger one that I, I 
I can't remember the exact moment, but I, but I got it in my head that I wanted to try to make an alaya mm. out of this three-quarter ply, and I, I think I, I varnished it with like deck varnish. It was pretty gnarly, um, and I paddled it out at um, pipes where I would always surf, and it, it float, it, it floated. So I was like, oh, this is cool. I didn't expect. I thought it was gonna just sink, but I didn't. It was really hard to try to catch waves with, and I only gave it like a day or two to try to do it, and I was like, ah, oh, this is frustrating. So I, I um, at the same time, I was studying uh, Hawaiian history, like surfing history, and I learned about the Paipo, which is a wooden belly board. So I took that lie, I cut it in half, and just kind of, because the plywood was so cheap, I could just shape a Paipo like in the morning take it to the beach in the evening and, and ride it. Sometimes I would seal it, sometimes I wouldn't. And it was a cool thing because I was able to really take, take that idea and like kind of develop it really fast as opposed to, you know, like sur surfboards, you have to glass it and it takes a long time for that development. So that gave me this bug for wanting to create boards. Cause I, I, I've always loved sculpture. Sculpture was a, kind of a secondary thing to me when, when I was going to school, but I always loved it. And um, I know the feeling when I, when I started making those wood pipos, it was like, wow, this is something that I feel like I've, I connected with like my life purpose or I feel really, I feel really lucky. I, I feel really lucky that I, I, when I, ever since I was a kid, I always loved to draw and paint and create. And I always knew that I was gonna do something with it but I didn't know what it was. Yeah. So I was always, I've always been driven in that respect. And then when I discovered shaping, I was like, oh, like light bulb moment. Avoiding expensive materials led her to wood carving. Wood carving led to a pipo board and pipo boards led to surfboards. The pursuit of her passion allowed her to find her medium and that medium was actually a blending of two of her passions, the preceding being surfing itself. She discovered it early and it dictated much of her life's path. Um, I was about four or five and we went on a family trip to Maui and um, my parents went out on this like scuba, they were doing like a scuba tour, kind of touristy thing. And the, the tour guide had, had a surfboard and I remember just seeing that thing and thinking it was the most amazing thing ever. And I wanted, I, I needed, I needed it in my life. And I, I don't, that was the first moment. And so from there I'd been just obsessed with trying to learn how to surf. So when my parents would take us to the beach, I would, you know, stand up on my boogie board and just beg them, please, can I learn how to surf? Christine ended up on the high school surf team where her coach insisted that she ride thin, long, heavily rockered thrusters. It was the fashionable board of pros at the time, but very difficult to learn on. I don't know what you'd call them, just long, long thrusters. But um, I had one, my first board was a 6'8 pintail thruster and I I struggled with it, I, and I didn't. I didn't know why, because I was a little kid. I was 11, um, but I, I remember. I don't know when I started. I know I was, I was in high school. I would draw. I would draw the boards, my boards that I wanted. I wanted like dream boards, and um, 
one of them was this round nose, like wide round nose, kind of shorter fish, like twin fin. And I, I must have seen fish, obviously, somewhere, because yeah. I, I remember my parents would take us down to the longboard grotto that was um, on the 101, and I would just kind of, it was like, it was kind of like a surf museum in there. I don't know if you had ever gone in no. there. They had just memorabilia from all time periods, like, you know, from magazines to old sidewalk skateboards mm. and just kind of creepy little statues and stuff, but, um, well, surfing should be fun. Right. If you're not having fun and you're, and you're struggling, I mean, I, I, I like, I like, it should be fun and easy, but I also like the challenge of certain designs, like the Alaya, for example, or the Pipo? Um, I'm thinking kind of like, say like a displacement hole. Okay. Or, or an edge board, an edge bottom. They're not easy in the f to ride in respects of, you know, you're not going to be able to do that bottom turn and, and hit the top like you could with a tri-fin design. But it'll give you an experience that you couldn't, or a feeling that you wouldn't feel on any type, any other type of board. And that, I, I like to search for that those different feelings. Interestingly, just as wood carvings led Christine to the hobby of shaping surfboards, illustration led Christine to the profession of shaping. When I um, got out of college, when I was a postgraduate limbo, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I got this idea that I wanted to draw on surfboards or paint surfboards, and I thought, oh, that would be a kind of an interesting job. So I put together a little kind of portfolio of older sketches that I had done in high school. It's kind of funny. I'm really shy, too, so I I um, I would show up to places and like ask them if I could get work, like illustration jobs too, like t-shirt designs. And I remember being on my computer one day looking for places that I could possibly go, t places I could go talk to, and um, the name Surfy Surfy came up. I'm like, that's a funny name, so I clicked on that name and. Um, it, uh, JP, uh, JP St. Pierre had a blog called Surfy Surfy and um, it was about his the surfboards at Moonlight Glassing and so he had a page on it that was talked about Moonlight Glassing and where I was living in Elfin Forest it was only five minutes down the road I'd never been to this industrial park I thought hey why not I'm gonna go there um, I think I came here twice once I was too scared to go in because I was <laughs> Um, and then the second time I came there and I, I met Sally St. Pierre, she was at the front desk, um, sweetest, most wonderful woman ever in the surf industry uh, and just life in general, if you have the pleasure to meet her. Um, I met her and she, I asked her, hey, do you have, uh, could I paint on, do you have any boards I could paint on? And she was so sweet, she's like, oh, no, my, my husband Peter paints on paints the boards. I had no idea who, what this legendary place was. And so then Peter came out and he, he's like, oh, hey, nice to meet you. And he looked at my, my drawings and he, he liked them. And he's like, oh, let me give you a tour of the factory. So they gave me a, their, you know, legendary tour of Moonlight Glassing. And they said, at the very end of it, they're like, you know, we'll, we'll think of a board that um, you, we'll, we'll come up with a board that you can come and paint on. So maybe like t a week or two later, I get a phone call from them and they're like, we, we have a board, it's to paint Hawaiian flowers on, on this, this custom. 
Peter hates drawing flowers because it's just he gets all these orders for drawing flowers and it's just you know it's like girly and you, you come do it so I came and picked up the board they encouraged me to paint on the board here but I was too scared shy so I took it back to my house and painted on it brought it back and they were happy with it and um, they called me like a couple weeks later and they're like we have another one for you but you got to paint it at the factory so that's when I met my my husband Manny um, and um, at that time that's when I when I was starting to make when I made that Elia and trying to make the pipos and so they it's kind of been a it's been like a, a nurturing place for me and like they're always really encouraging and um, it's kind of been my my surf family like my, my family that's not my blood family yeah um, Moonlight is an iconic glassing facility in North County, San Diego, now owned by Christensen Surfboards. They have various shaping bays where surfboard shapers rent space to shape boards, and then their glassing facility finishes the surfboards. High quality work with an illustrious list of shapers that they glass boards for. Any quality oriented business that is blessed with success will need to assess this fine balance of quality control versus increasing volume. I mean, I, I've been really lucky. Like, I, um, when I started shaping, I mean, I, I made a few boards for my friends. Like, I, um, I had, I had a friend actually that knew I wanted to shape surfboards. I'd, I'd already been shaping, um, pipo boards. Oh, yeah. Wooden pipo boards and hand planes. But I didn't have, you know, the funds to start shaping because I was also working, like, cafe jobs and stuff. Sure. And so she was like, oh, make me a board. I'll pay for it. Like, just do it and so from there I, I made about five boards and I think I got a custom order from someone emailed me and it's kind of been just growing steady growth each year with that and I, I like I like the slow growth because I can you know it's not all of a sudden boom like yeah. do this it's kind of just been a good it's been it's been organic quality is a huge thing for me and right. if I can't if I can't make the board that I want in that demand then I just I'll just have a long list I guess I, which isn't a bad thing yeah I mean I would probably hire someone to help me with all the paperwork which would be great yeah um but I, I mean I, I I hand shape only so I I, I couldn't make 80 boards a week right. <laughs> I asked Christine how exactly she would define the style of boards that she's building Boards that were built um, between 1964 to 1975, 74, 75. It's when um, guys saw George Greeno surf a, a Velo spoon for the first time. Before that time, you know, most people were surfing longboards, walking to the nose, doing, you know, clean turns, but nothing very radical on the wave and so that time period was really cool because it just sparked people started making boards shorter and, and um, really experimenting with design that um, I feel like for me I, I'm fascinated by those designs so I, I kind of feel like I want to go back in time but put my my input on that on those boards because I, I I've I haven't ridden very many of those types of boards. I've just seen them. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, that's cool. I like that. I want to put my rails, my rocker, 
my bottom and feel what that feels like. So that's kind of my focus, I guess. I would like to break down the edge design. Yeah. Can you, first of all, explain it to listeners who haven't seen one or maybe they um, didn't know what they were looking at when they saw it? Explain what it looks like and then what was your first exposure to it and why did you go down that rabbit hole? Um, well, what it looks like is um, you can put the edge bottom on any normal template. Um, but the bottom of the board, um, it's, almost like, it's almost like two surfboards sandwiched on top of each other with the bottom board being narrower and having full sharp edge from the tail almost to the nose. It just kind of fades into the nose. Um, How far is that edge inset from the other rail? Depends on the design. Okay. Um, yeah, Mark Andrini, he, um, he, he, was, he, he came out with his book, The Gift, um, recently. But um, while he was working on that book, he would talk to uh, George Greeno on the phone, maybe for a few hours a day. Cause, um, and um, they would, one of the conversations they would talk about was the edge design. And um, I think George had the idea of he wanted to share that design with people that would be interested in experimenting with it because he wanted to see what else could come of it. And um, from my understanding, his studies of the design were for big wave guns and for his windsurfers and, and knee boards. We all knew about George Greeno because in 1964, You've heard of The Endless Summer. I've heard of that. <laughs> George Greeno was in the beginning of that film. Not okay. a lot of people will remember that. You'll remember it if you go back and watch it. Still others like a short belly board and a long ride like George Greeno at Santa Barbara, California. The Edge surfboard design starts with Greeno, then gets passed to Mark Andrini, who then shares it with Christine and her husband, Manny Caro. Here's a little primer on George Greeno. Mark first encountered George while surfing the ranch with soon-to-be four-time world champion Margot Oberg. That day, I went with Margot, whose friends from La Jolla were coming up. They're rich guys with a fancy Boston whaler. Okay. And I mean, we were dirt poor. And so they wanted to come up and surf the ranch. He's now 13, and they think that she has connections, right? Well, her connection's me. And so she asked me, hey, you know, my friends want to come up and surf the ranch, you know. Can, can you fix that so we can? I said, sure, I've been there. I know all about the ranch. And of so course, lis- for listeners who don't know, the ranch is a private property. It's all private access. property. It's not accessible except by boat. So they're coming up with a Boston whaler with twin 40-horsepower Evinrude outboards, you know, new station wagon towing it. I mean, these guys have some coinage. And, of course, I used the same tactics as when I invited her to go surfing with me by exaggerating my capabilities. Oh, I'll take you there, no problem. So, sure, no problem. Had you ever been there before? Of course not. Okay. But I'd memorized. I'm only 15, for God's sake. Right. So I knew everything about the ranch. I'd read everything ever written about it. I knew what tide, what spot, what sway, everything. Okay. But I'd never actually seen it. So these guys come up, and I'm 15. I probably weigh 130 pounds. You know, I'm a little skinny, tall, skinny kid. And I'm in my, tra- my peak 
my pea coat, you know, and my Levi's and a white T-shirt. And uh, they stuck me up in the bow as the navigator, and we launched off the Gaviota Pier. And I don't know how in God's name I did it, but I figured out how to get us to, le- to rights and lefts. And we get there, and it's, there's not a soul in the ranch, just the four of us. And we surfed there until it started to close out. It was a big South Swell building. The tide dropped, and it closed out. And I knew, well, you got to go to Government Point. That's low tide, big South Swell. And you, if you've been there, you'd understand, how the hell did I figure out how to get us there? Because there's these channels that cut through the kelp to get in there. And somehow or another, I got us there. And it's like one of the best days of the year. Really? And well, You know it was one of the best days of, year, of the year because Danny Hazard and George Greeno show up. And they're the only other people in the ranch besides us. So, yeah, you can be sure it was one of the good days. That had nothing to do with me. Sure. I just got us there. I didn't know there was a swell coming. So we're out in the cove surfing our longboards, you know, surf team era, no, whip turns, running to the nose, quick five, cheater fives, drop knee cutbacks. You know, we're wearing short John wetsuits. And here's this guy who paddles out way around the top of the point where it's just solid rocks at six to eight foot, unrideable by longboard standards. We never even considered it rideable up there. And I watched him ride his red spoon. I had no idea what it was. You couldn't understand what it was because it was hollow. It's just paper-thin fiberglass with a little rim of foam around the front. And he would bank into these incredible bottom turns, accelerate out of the turn, which no one had ever seen, ever, and pull up into a barrel, which, no, I'd never seen that, and vanish from sight, and then come exploding out of the barrel, and then do a figure-eight cutback up into the soup, and pull back into a second barrel on the same wave, and then come out and do another figure-eight cutback. I was just, just, I was astounded. Ridiculous. That would have been 1966. Okay. Before the shortboard revolution. So I saw that firsthand. Yeah. And And how did uh, that affect you, and how did that change the course of what you were writing? Well, for me, it was only a year later that I shaped my first shortboard. Okay. And the template came through a friend of mine who got it from George Greeno, a 7.3 swallow. I made it into a swallowtail. It's probably an arctail, but I, for some reason, thought a swallowtail would be good on it, which it was. And I made a rolled bottom and a V in the tail, and it was really a great board. That mm. my, was my brother's longboard that had wrecked at Steamer Lane. Got it. And uh, I tore the glass off and reshaped it. And that was my first really good surfboard. And I was 16 then, so it's probably 1967 when I made that board. And, and that was it for me. From then on, I only made my own boards. Yeah. Mark maintained an acquaintance-level relationship with Greeno through their mutual friend, Rennie Yader. But in 2016, Mark was putting finishing touches on his book, The Gift, where he goes deep into board design. He reached out to George to research some details where it actually spawned a deeper version of their friendship. They shared regular phone calls every 10 days. Mark went to Byron Bay, Australia to visit George and learn more about the edge board design. 
which George gave Mark approval to explore back in California and to share with anybody he thought would be interested. I've done a whole series of them to learn how to adapt them for stand-up boards, and he has encouraged me to do it because he is a kneeboarder, and you have to... He's always been very generous with his knowledge, and he will help anybody who's interested, but you have to do all the fine-tuning yourself because only you can adapt the type of board that you're riding to your style of surfing and waves. He can't do that for you, but he can give you all the the background of what you ought to consider trying. Sure. So he's given me all of his templates. He's been building a series of edge boards for people to stand up on, and a number of really high-level, big-name surfers have been riding them, and I've, you know, met them and communicated with them. And I've taken all of his templates and information and shared it with a group of my friends in California and got them going on it. Yeah. Because it's really just, as George says, to put some sand in the transmission and make people stop and think. I liked when when Mark explained the design to me about how, you know, George, he was used to surfing waves before there was a lot of people and then as more people came to surfing he he couldn't surf those perfect points because there was more people so he'd surf kind of less lesser waves um lesser quality waves so but he still wanted a board that would still cut through those flat sections and still have maintain that speed um as as a point break would have and um (laughs) <laughs> the wave that I surf in uh, Lucadia has a lot of flat spots. It's um, There's barely any kind of lip. <laughs> Sometimes there's a lip, but most of the time there's not. And I said, oh, well, that's great. I could apply that. I want to I try that design, apply it to my, you know, my mini, my mini board, my mini board designs. And sure. so um, that's, I started. And so I, I, my first board, I, I, I was like, oh, this is a Greeno design. So I'm going to do it on a Velo Arctail template. And um, that one worked great. It was really fast. It did cut through all those sections. But when I went to do a turn, just having a single fin, that wide tail, it would just lose all that speed. And then you try to come back around. And it was just kind of like, that's kind of pointless because I've just, you have all that, sp- all that speed. And then to do a turn, and you just lose it. Sure. So um, I found through you know a bunch of experiments, my, my favorite edge design right now is I, I have a, design I call the labyrinth it's a Wayne Lynch inspired wide point back egg shape and it has more of a rounder narrower tail and um, I found that that is a that board is a really good combination because it won't lose speed through turns um, like that wide arc tail does but um, my name is Mike. I'm 49 years old. I live in Seal Beach, California, and I spend my weekends surfing our local beach breaks like Bolsa Chica, Dog Beach, Seal Beach, and occasionally North County, San Diego. The board I got is Christine's single fin, mid-length, double ender shape she calls her labyrinth model. The board is made with standard board materials. There's nothing exotic or cutting edge about that. But what sets it apart from other boards is that it features the distinctive edge bottom and lifted rail design Greeno came up with in the late 1960s. The dims are 7 by 21 and a quarter by 3 and an eighth. Now, that's a lot of foam in those dimensions, but the lifted rails remove a lot of that foam out of the finished board. I love the board. As promised, it excels in the soft average waves we have around here. It's super smooth and quick for its size, and I can 
paddle out in just about any conditions and have a good time. It just gives me more options when I go to the beach. The board was already shaped by the time she posted it, so the only customization I had is with the glassing schedule and colors. She and I discussed various glassing schedules, but in the end I left it up to her to decide what type of cloth to use. I chose the wet sand and went with the plain clear white finish. She nailed it on the glassing schedule. The board is strong, but not too heavy. It's taken a number of hits over the last 10 months and it still looks great. And it, it cut, like when on windy days, a lot of times I, I go surf after work and it's choppy and stuff and it doesn't seem to mind any chop because it almost kind of hovers over that and just cuts, cuts through all that. And um, yeah, it's, it's great. It's a, it's a different feeling though, you know, it's, um, I, think, I think there's this argument if they work or not, it's, yes, they work. But it's it's a different it's a different sensation and it's a different way to ride them. Hmm. Similar, I ride them similar to the way that I would ride a displacement hole, but I don't have to ride perfect Malibu. You know, it can it can be a beach break closeout. Yeah. So, like I have a six eight labyrinth right now that's about three and a quarter, which is really thick. Okay. But I'm able to foil, I was able to foil the rails really thin, the tail really thin, and the nose really thin. So when I'm up on the wave, it feels like a really responsive board. But I have all that thickness to just catch anything I want. So a lot of times that 6.8, I could take it out on a day that, you know, you'd take out a glider or a, or a, a mid-length or a log. Sure. And just... Um, it's, there's so much still there's so much potential there yeah it, it's an expensive thing for someone to say oh I'm gonna try this and yeah but if you're looking for something different different feeling a different heightened experience heightened awareness I think it's it's great I um, and I find the best time that I have on that la my six eight labyrinth edge board is after I've been riding a couple sessions on my 96 uh, triplane hole glider, which I call a cosmic bandito, because that thing, it's crazy fast. It, it could be the, just close up, close up, close up. You just fly through all those sections, but you just stand in the center of it and just let it take you for a ride. You can't impose your and will on that. So board. when I have that mindset, I go onto the edge board. And I can turn easier, but I'm still kind of have this kind of my center, kind of a calm center. I'm not like, oh, I'm going to ride my fish. I want to try to do a radical bottom turn and, you know, yeah. hit, hit the top. So that, that's, yeah, tapping into what the board is communicating to you and then kind of becoming one with it. Yeah. That's what it's all about. I grew up surfing in Orange County, California, and there were really just three main surf magazines in print at the time. Very few surf films produced every year. Nearly all of my peers who consumed surf content drank from the same well, and consequently, surfing in Orange County was very homogenized. Everyone rode the same style of surfboard, the same black wetsuits, surfed the same, almost all of these things modeled after a few pros and a few different brands. Being of similar age and raised a mere 30 miles apart, I was curious how Christine's unique aesthetic, interests, and worldview developed. 
I didn't like being put into a box, like and having a label. And I feel like with our society, we've always we're always trying to put ourselves in these boxes. And um, I guess I've always tried to fight that because I'm like, well, I want to do what I want to do, and I want to like explore explore the things that I'm interested in, not because I'm told to do it or that it's cool or not accepted. So I. I mean, I, I never, I, I remember, okay, so I, I got, had surfer magazines when I was a kid, and I remember looking at them and being like, oh, this is so cool, I want to surf like that, and then I had this realization, because I think the only, I mean, yeah, I'm a woman, so the only women that were surfing in there was, like, Lisa Anderson and Leanne Beachley, Beachley I don't yeah. know say her last name, and I was like, oh, that's cool, but, but they don't surf how I'm really, how I, like that experience is different like I was I looked up to them but it was kind of I didn't feel a connection to it so I guess I wasn't fed what I was looking for so I needed to find it myself like I'm influenced by like the older generation of surfers like I I I, I try to learn from like like Skip Fry and like um, I'm fortunate enough to be able to talk with Cher Pendarvis and like learn about her history and I who is Cher Pendarvis Cher Pendarvis um how how would I begin to start talking about her she she was surfing I don't want to get this wrong but she was surfing um like she's friends with Steve Liss like she's San Diego surfer she was surfing when you know not many women were surfing out there with you know surfing fish like small five four fish and stuff and um she was making her own fins and boards and glassing boards for other people back in the day and um she's she's an amazing historian of surfing um how did you connect with her i'm trying to remember that i remember I think I was on the phone with her once. I think maybe Peter St. Pierre yeah. connected me with her because when I was making those pipos and stuff, he's like, oh, you need to meet Cher. And so I had a conversation with her and I was just, my mind just, you know, just blew. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. Trying to retain all the stories that she, she talks about. At the beginning of this episode, Christine talked about her desire to create boards that would lead to positive experiences in people's lives. I told her that I've spoken to a lot of shapers over the years, and yet I've never really heard anybody mention that as a motivating factor for their work. She explained that she's actually had to set an intention for a positive outlook and, in fact, remove elements from her day that were perpetuating negativity and clouding her creativity. It, it was putting me in the spot where I wasn't creating, and so I, I have a f- bunch of little side projects that I do on my own that I wasn't, I wasn't doing. Yeah. I stopped them for that time period, and that, that wasn't healthy, so. I don't have cable TV. I, um, I actually, with our political climate right now, I, I got really involved with it um, maybe two years ago with the whole presidential thing, and I, I noticed that I was looking at the news every day, and it was really depressing me. <laughs> um, and I thought, oh, what, you know, I'm, I'm an artist, you know, like I, I like to create and most of the things I create are about happiness and positivity, right? And bringing people, giving them some kind of joy and I, and I, and I, I kind of struggled with where my place was with that. 
I think I think I made a couple political posts on my Instagram, but I I think I had this time where I just I just needed to stop with that and be like, okay, what's my purpose here on Earth? And I think my purpose is to try to show that like this world is awesome and that we have a lot of good things to live for and. I mean, just, I mean, if you talk about surfing, just an experience that you've never experienced on a wave with a feeling on a surfboard, that's a really amazing thing to experience. And um, right now, we're, the greater powers that be are trying to make us fearful. Um, I'm just, I, I, I just, I'm trying to, there's too much of that. And um, How's your life been since you cut out cable? Well, I actually haven't ever had cable as an adult. Um, and fortunately, my husband didn't have cable, you know, when we met. So it's it's great. Um, I mean, I, I do a thing where I'll, I'll look at news events like every two weeks. I mean, it's we're so saturated. You yeah. see stuff. And so I'll follow up on it. And it's good to be informed. And of course, when it's time to vote and, you know, use your powers, that's when the time is. But I don't need to know, like what politicians are doing every right. day like just kind of it's almost like it's like reality reality tv you know it's like i don't need to know what they were what they wore today that was offensive to people you know it's mm-hmm. i know it's all offensive <laughs> <laughs> You can find Christine Brailsford Caro on Instagram at furrowsurfcraft and at furrowsurfcraft.com. There you'll find plenty of images of her boards and people riding them. We'll have links to that and imagery of Christine in the shaping bay at visla.com. Today's show, episode two of Creators and Innovators, was written, produced, and edited by myself, David Scales, with support from Visla. If you enjoyed it, check out my other work at surfsplendorpodcast.com, which is where Mark Andrini's audio was called from in this episode. You can find that complete episode in the archives. Also, if you enjoyed hearing listeners' reviews of Christine's boards, we'll be releasing those in their entirety as a bonus episode this week. It includes Christine's commentary on those specific designs, and then a couple of additional things that were cut from this episode, including what board Christine's currently riding and what board she would actually order right now if given the opportunity from any shaper on the planet. So to ensure that you get that bonus episode and all future episodes of Creators and Innovators, make sure you subscribe to this podcast feed. And as is now a tradition, we'll close out this episode with Half Empty, Half Full, where Christine weighs in on controversial hot topics that surfers and shapers are currently facing. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this show, please just share it with one friend and we'll continue to keep this content coming. Until next month, I'll leave you with Half Empty, Half Full with Christine Brailsford Caro. Thanks. Machine, machine shaped boards.
Mm -hmm. So I, I can only speak from my own experience. So I, I don't use the machine. Well, I use the Skill 100, which is a machine, I guess, but I don't use the CNC machine. Um, I told myself that one day I'll probably have to use the CNC machine if I get, you know, a thousand orders like you were talking about. It's kind of like a demand thing, and it's how I want to bring the brand, but I haven't gotten to that point. I, I, don't, I think it's unfair to judge people for using the CNC machine if they have been hand shaping like putting the, put their they've put their time into hand shaping let me say and they could they can hand shape a board anytime they want i think there if you haven't put that time into hand shaping and you go straight to the machine or you design your boards in the computer to me and it doesn't matter to anyone else but to me i don't think that's fair cuz I, I like i i like the art and the craft of creating with your own hands and it's that's really important to me but it might not be important to anyone else so. yeah how are you uh, optimistic or pessimistic eco-friendly surfboards um optimistic you are yeah i i've been focusing on making my boards strong so that they last a long time and i think that that is very eco-friendly um in my mind um I, I'd like to, th I'm thinking of some ideas of what to do with, like, the bones and the dust. Um, maybe make some sculptures. I have a, fr a friend, um, Ed Lewis, that does enjoy hand planes, and he's come up with this formula to mix with cement, mix the foam with cement, and he makes, like, these little eco-Buddhas, mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. Totally. So doing something like that, I'd like to reduce my trash footprint. Um, but as far as making eco-friendly boards, if they, yeah, I'd like to, like, more eco-friendly boards, I'd like to if they perform the way that, if I don't compromise the way, the performance, I guess. I mean, obviously we're all pro-eco boards. Yeah. But what I mean, whether you're optimistic or not, is like, what's the outlook? I mean, does it look good? Is there any uh, real viable improvements on the horizon, you know? Well, it seems like we're... we're there's a lot of people that are experimenting with this yeah. and they're trying like mushroom blanks and different things and that I, I think that's great people are people are experimenting right now I think it might take a long time to actually yeah. get to the point where we're at that point where it's like okay we can do production with these boards but I, I I'm all for trying yeah. to trying to help yeah optimistic or pessimistic imported boards <laughs> that's a loaded question of course <laughs> um yeah all, all of the materials that i use on my boards are made here in california it's really important to me even um i there's some i use u.s blanks um they're just made up here in northern california and they they made all their their roofs are solar panels so all their energy is solar and i think that's really great some companies have dangled a carrot in front of our face. They like, oh, do you want to buy our blanks? Oh, where are your blanks made? Oh, they're glued up in California, but where are they blown? Oh, Mexico or oh, some other state. And I'm like, well, what are their emission standards? Not what we have here in California because we have really high emission standards. Um, so I mean, it there's a problem because a lot of 
there are companies that are making their boards overseas, getting materials that are not as friendly for the environment and are a lot cheaper, and selling their boards for the same, if not more, than we're doing so. But their profit is, they're actually making money. Those imported boards have a little label on them that say they're eco-friendly and this and that. and. Mine don't have a label on them because I don't really like logos. I like one logo on there. I try to keep it minimal. But I, I don't know. I'd have to, you know, the, the customers that have bought my boards and are drawn to my boards, they, I think they, they understand that side. Some people don't. Some people are like, well, wow, it, all of your materials are made in California. I didn't know that. You know, why didn't you say more? Maybe I should, but. Um, but that's why I'm bringing it up. Yeah. Is I think that consumers care and they want to know. Yeah. But when they walk up to the rack, that information is not available to them. Yeah. And um, I think s there's been some like kind of intentional smokescreen marketing from certain yeah. brands as well that adds to the customer confusion. Yeah. But I do think that customers not only care, but I think that they would pay a premium even yeah. for the U.S. made or the California made. And yeah. I mean, yeah, there, that's the sad thing is there's a lot of smoke screens with the things that we buy. Mm -hmm. um, and how, how do you know what's truth from, you know? Right. So, um, yeah, it's hard. I mean, the, you know, the economy, everything has gone up in price and surfboards have kind of stayed the same price. Right. And for us, you know, doing this as a living, it's like, could we buy a house? I don't know. Probably not. Yeah. No, maybe in the desert. But yeah. <laughs> um, so that's kind of, it's a hard thing. But then the people that are making them overseas, you know, they <laughs> maybe have a few houses. <laughs> or, yeah, or, it, or they might not. I mean, it, who are those laborers and are they able to afford a house either? Maybe not, you know. No, yeah. So are, are you exporting? You mentioned, though, you're sending some boards to Japan. Yeah, so my shop's consists of California, up and down the coast of California, and then I have a shop Kion in Hawaii, and then uh, M's in Japan. So, oh, okay. um, but we ship boards, we can ship boards anywhere in the world, it just, you know, most people don't want to pay the price to ship it to Australia, because it's a lot of money. But Japan is feasible? The Japanese market supports that Yeah, tariff? I mean, they, they mark their boards up. Um, of amazing how much boards are in japan but yeah. they have to pay the taxes and the right. shipping and but it's still worth it yeah yeah that's awesome yeah it is awesome uh, japan is um i i had a lot of fun going there because it was cool to s not everyone but for the most part their culture takes a lot of pride in um the this craft that they do if they make chopsticks they try to make the best chopstick and make it better the next day and they really focus on that so it was really cool that they um, love what we do here in California with surfboards and so I've kind of I feel honored that they're interested in something that I make because I think everything they have there is so amazing totally. and um, being able to see how they work at in their surfboard factories there and um, the glassing that they do is just there's no bubbles no bubbles even like on the glass on fins just not even the smallest bubble it's it's amazing that is awesome yeah cool well i covered my bases okay thank you christine thank you